Hello again, after a, a week, two weeks actually. It's Gary Meese with episode 21 of The Case Against. I started this podcast not as a reaction to Bob Ruff's Truth and Justice podcast, even though I, there was a lot of comments and requests that somebody do a podcast giving the other side of the story besides the rather silly version that Ruff put out. Uh, but, you know, I am aware of his podcast. I haven't listened to to anything but the West Memphis Three case from him. And uh, But I have been following, following comments and so forth and Facebook posts about it. And a lot of people seem unhappy with it but you know I don't know why they would be happy with it anyway today he sounds like he was wrapping up his uh, uh, his take on the Sandra Melgar case and of course he didn't solve that case and he's going to move on to uh, another case and I put a little comment in there in the uh, truth is justice forum which is Facebook page which is uh, a Facebook page for a, a podcast that really directly addresses addresses what Ruff is doing, and uh, if you're looking for that sort of thing, it's a good place to go. Um, I think it's the only time I've ever posted any sort of comment on this uh, page, and the reason I was listening today was because I wanted to see if he was actually going to get back to the West Memphis Three as he promised. Uh, I don't think that's going to happen. Though he, he's going to do a television series, so we'll see what happens there. I'll go comment a little bit, a bit about that in the post. Anyway, I wrote, uh, looking at Bob Ruff's next case, Jamie Snow, convicted of murdering 18-year-old Billy Little in 1991, it's rich material for Ruff. Inconsistent eyewitnesses, jailhouse snitches, troubled attorneys, questionable police tactics. Ruff won't solve it any more than he has solved any other case, but he will certainly be able to string along listeners and advertisers. I won't be listening. The last 10 minutes of today's show was the first I'd heard in a year. My prediction on the West Memphis Three season for Oxygen is that, after a few shows in which he proves, quotes, uh, Eccles, Miskelly, and Baldwin must be innocent because of those ironclad alibis, Ruff will pull out the long list of weirdos and child molesters from the records and emit his patented fog of sonorous uh, misdirection. He won't solve that one either. And I don't believe he will. Now, <coughs> a little cough there, and I hope it's the only cough I do for a while. Uh, I've really gotten interested in the Central Park Five case uh, because of the Netflix series, and uh, it was an Oprah special that was really god awful. And then uh, there was uh, the Ken Burns produced this uh, documentary a few years ago that his daughter made about the case, and. Uh, 
And my concern, my interest in this, my concern with this is that it, it's this has become the standard practice with these documentaries. And of course, the uh, the Netflix series is is a dramatized version of events. And we understand there's going to be some dramatic license. However, if you watch that show, you would never never get a clue as to what actually went on in Central Park with these these uh, teenagers uh, that evening, where they violently assaulted a number of different people. They looked look looked like it was just a bunch of, you know, young fellows just zooming about the uh, Central Park, not causing any real trouble for anybody, playfully patting some cyclists as they come zooming by, which is not what happened. The cyclists did come zooming by, including a, they show a tandem bicycle. They did come zooming by, but <laughs> the interaction wasn't playful or friendly. Uh, the cyclists managed to get away. The joggers and the pedestrians didn't for the most part. As to whether uh, the West, the the five who were convicted of uh, the rape of this jogger, as to whether they were actually innocent of that crime, I mean, technically their convictions have been vacated, which means that basically they they don't it doesn't exist one way or the other anymore. But uh, it's not really the same as being found innocent of the crime. But in a way, it's better because it's just simply, you know, their records have been expunged. I, I think that's what the whole thing's about there. And it's as if they've ne never been involved in any kind of crime of that sort at all. Uh, the settlement that they received ultimately $41 million, but the settlement they received uh, in terms of vacating the sentences didn't really even try to address the crimes they actually, no doubt, actually committed. And uh, the idea that they're being paraded on uh, national television or, and in these networks and so forth with Oprah Winfrey as some sort of heroes is disgusting and just shows how wrong these true how wrong these true crime documentaries can go but they don't care all they do is they want to get the viewers and it make if it makes a better story then they'll just glide right over the facts and they do it in the west uh, they do it in the west memphis 3 case which really is the paradigm for all this i think two things happened in the mid 90s that really sparked a lot of this. One is the Paradise Lost movie, uh, which you know seemed to blame the police and the prosecutors and the judge and the public for uh, this conviction of these three young men for uh, an alleged ritual sacrifice in the woods when you know, there was plenty of evidence that they did it. But you didn't see any of that in the movie. I saw very little of it, let's put it that way. And, um, and you know, and, and simply 
misstating facts. You know, the 12-hour um, interrogation of Jesse Miskelly just didn't happen, but it's in the movies. It, they, they say it was 12 hours. It didn't happen. Uh, and the other event was the O.J. Simpson case. And here's, here's some rich irony for you. The, the supporters of the West Memphis Three often go on and on about how there's no physical evidence tying the West Memphis Three to the crime scene. And there is, but it's not really good, strong physical evidence. It's fiber evidence. It's kind of weak. It's more than kind of weak. It's, it's not something you could ever convict anybody on. It is evidence that helps bolster the case a little bit. If, if those fibers weren't there, it really wouldn't make any difference. And if the fibers was all they if fibers were all they had, those fibers, there would never be a case against the West Memphis Three. No matter what, no matter the, that they listened to Metallica and wore black T-shirts, which is supposedly the premise for the whole prosecution. But in the O.J. Simpson case, they had DNA. They had the physical evidence. There was blood everywhere. The blood was all, you know, the blood of the victim and the blood of the perpetrator, you know, mixed up together. It didn't make any difference. The judge, the, the jury didn't seem to care. And, of course, in that case, it was all, that was all due to uh, payback on a racial basis. You know, black guy murders his white wife. And OJ was about as white as you could get and still be black. Um, but he was a black guy, so, you know, the jury was very happy to get him off. And he was a football star, so he had some sympathy there. And he was a well-liked celebrity up to that point. So physical evidence doesn't really count. It didn't seem to count in the Stephen Avery case. Uh, you know, if, if they find the physical evidence and the police planted it, which is what was alleged in the, in the Avery case and the Simpson case, they don't find physical evidence in the, that, that the preferred physical evidence, the DNA evidence in the West Memphis Three case, because the three little boys were submerged underwater for 18 hours. And all that was either uh, washed away, either washed away, or it was so degraded by the time it could be tested that it really didn't count for anything. They couldn't. Maybe they could get some things now, but the technology at the time, at the time, the findings, uh, some of the things like what looked like skin fragments and so forth, that could have come from somebody else. They just simply couldn't get a good reading on any of that. So, the commonalities in those two is, is the alleged, you know, malevolent police force. And, you know, what are, Mark Furman said some things he shouldn't have said. And I understand a lot of that was, he was play acting for a screenplay, but still, <laughs> he got him... He opened the door to getting himself into big trouble and, and really, of course, it paid off for him in the end, I think, in that he 
came out with a better career than he would ever had if, just like everybody, virtually everybody else in that, that, that trial came out with you know so much notoriety, so much fame, that it almost didn't make any difference what he did. He was going to somehow come out ahead. Um, but you know he was the that he became the the evil policeman, and of course in the West Memphis Three. I have yet to see anybody come up with any evidence that there was, you know, there was some some evidence that was not handled optimally, and there were, I could point to things that I wish the investigators had done that they didn't do, and some things they did that really seemed unnecessary, but that is what happens in a police investigation. It's not perfect, and it's not going to be perfect. It's a trial and error process at best. And that is the nature of it. You go test things and you check things out. And some of the things you check out, most of the things you check out, guess what? They don't pan out. You know, they did dozens and dozens and dozens of polygraphs and all they basically did with, in that case, and most of what they come up came up with was the negative result and that uh, the, the polygraph showed, oh, they, it looks like they didn't have anything to do with any of this. Two polygraphs did show they had something to do with this. One was Damien Eccles, the other was Jesse Miskelly. There were also polygraphs taken from Buddy Lucas that showed that, yeah, it looks like Jesse Miskelly really did confess to Buddy Lucas. And, yeah, Ken Watkins t t takes a, a polygraph, and yeah, it looks like uh, Damien Eccles really did confess to Ken Watkins. And yeah, Michael Carson takes a, a polygraph, and it looks like Jason Baldwin confessed to Michael Carson. Anyway, I'm going to do more on the the Central Park Five. I'm uh, eager to see what uh, Bob Ruff's going to do on the West Memphis Three, but I'm not anticipating that it's going to be very good. It's television. They're not going to be able to get into a whole lot of detail on it. Uh, I have a feeling it's going to be a sim the same sort of thing you see all the time where they repeat the some certain basic points are going to repeat them over and over and over again and then Ruff's going to go off into La La Land with as I said some of the possible alternatives that there's no way of checking out at this point there's no way of solving solving the case at this point even if somebody came forward with a confession at this point uh, they'd have to have some proof behind the confession and I don't see that. I, it's not going to happen. Or if it's going to happen, it's going to be Jesse Miskelly coming forward once again and saying, yeah, I did it. Anyway, I am going to first read a short chapter. Uh, from Blood on Black, one of my books on the West Memphis Three case. The other, the other, the 
I have three books. Blood on Black and Where the Monsters Go are two fairly large books. Um, very complete. Volume 1, Volume 2. Basically giving a rundown of much of the facts of the, the basic facts of the case it certainly doesn't have everything because if, if that was the case it'd be a much 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 bigger book it'd be 10 volumes or whatever but uh, I wrote 800 pages or so so that's that's a lot there's also a condensed version which is approximately half that size called the case against the West Memphis three killers all these are available on Amazon and I would contend that the case against the West Memphis Three Killers is uh, more readable, more condensed, certainly not as complete, but the, uh, no vital facts have been pulled out of it. And uh, one of the things I'm going to be talking about today, I know I, I cut way back in uh, the case against the West Memphis Three Killers, and that's the information surrounding L.G. Hollingsworth. Uh, I didn't cut him completely out, but I just cut out a lot of information about him because it didn't... He is an interesting character on the fringes of the case. Bob Ruff spent a total of, what, four hours talking about uh, L.G., you know, his initial episodes and his follow-ups. And... Uh, there's some strange things about LG and his, you know, he's in, he's in, a, he's in funny places at funny times and you really have to wonder what's going on. Why didn't this kid just tell the truth about what he was doing if it was that innocent? And at times he seems to do that and then he goes back to making up stuff and you just wonder what's going on here. Um, the other thing I'm going to read from before that is, is uh, concerning the events that happened on Friday, May 7th at uh, Skateland, West Memphis Skating Rink. Um, earlier that day, Eccles uh, supposedly had done this made this confession to Ken Watkins while they were walking uh, over the uh, somewhere over the interstate and he didn't implicate uh, Baldwin or Miskelly and he mostly just said he was you know there for this while this killing was going on to his friend Ken Watkins who who didn't wasn't really forthcoming with this immediately. I mean, police had to track him down and he wasn't really that keen about talking about it, but he did. After he failed polygraph. Just like Jesse Miskelly. Miskelly wasn't going to talk until after he failed polygraph. Polygraph is a useful tool. It's not something that they allow in courts as evidence because it's open to interpretation. It's not an exact uh, you know, it's not, there's not a 100% accuracy with the thing. You know, the experts can grade it on a certain level, and it's, it's highly accurate. But it's not, you know, it's not above 90%. I think it's somewhere like 70 to 85% accurate. 
probably dependent on the operator. Maybe a, a really bad operator, maybe a lot less. And I, I'm sure that the critics of the West Memphis Three case will say that uh, the uh, operator uh, in this case did a very poor job. Anyway, uh, they have they have said that. Anyway, I'm going to read what what went on at Skateland. Uh, several of Baldwin, Miskelly, and Eccles' friends told police about the three murderers attending the all-night skate at the West Memphis skating rink the day after the bodies were found. That would be May 7th. Jason Baldwin's girlfriend, Heather Clyatt, saw Jason that evening with Eccles and Miskelly. She just said hi to Jason. Jason Crosby, a friend, told police that Eccles and Baldwin came in together while Miss Kelly arrived later with his friend, Dennis Carter. Miss Kelly approached Crosby and said that he had heard Crosby told people that Jesse had not whipped him. This gets back to one of these fights that Miss Kelly tend to have with people. Miss Kelly had beaten up Crosby after he retrieved a bicycle stolen by Miss Kelly. Crosby said he was not looking for a fight and went to sit with Eccles and Baldwin. The report from, and this is Crosby telling this to police, the report from Crosby continued, states that Damien and Jason both had girls with them and Jason seemed to be really down in the dumps. States that, states that he asked Jason what was wrong with him. He told him nothing. He just didn't feel good. End of quote. Uh, when Crosby left around 10.30 or 11, Uh, PM, Eccles, Baldwin, and Miskelly were still there. Uh, Diener, Dino Perfetti, a close friend of Miskelly's, described a closer interaction among Baldwin, Eccles, and Miskelly, who, according to people like Matt Baldwin and uh, well, other people who are close to the culprits in this case, they weren't friends. They didn't. But, they barely, uh, Eccles and, and Baldwin really didn't have anything to do with Miss Kelly. Well, that's not even what Eccles himself says. They hung out some together. Were they really, really close personal friends? Those two with Miss Kelly? Apparently not. But they were close enough to, <laughs> to have him tag along for this killing spree that they went on. Anyway, Perfetti, 17, wrote, I can remember I'd seen him at the skating rink in West Memphis, Memphis with Jason and Damien. Jesse did come in with him, but when he noticed some other people he knew, he left the other two so he could be with his other friends. Even though Damien and Jason were acting a little strange that night, I thought Jesse was calm and he didn't show any signs of being scared or anything, but I can't be sure that he wasn't. And of course these memories are being told to the police after the arrest. So there's a certain amount of editing and you know filling in the blanks that these pe these kids would be doing at this point, seeming to recall uh, Baldwin and Eccles as seeming seeming to be nervous. I don't know why that he would necessarily have been paying any attention to them that evening, other than just to remember to see them because he has some acquaintance with them. Uh, I'll give you that. 
But they were they were seen together two days after the killings. Now I'm going to read quite a this is quite a long thing, and I I may give out before the whole thing's over with, and I may just pick it up again next week. But L. G. Hollingsworth. Uh, chapter titled LG stated that they were talking about him that he was the fourth suspect like Heather Clyatt who was uh, Baldwin's girlfriend and Vicki Hutchison who insisted on playing detective in the case LG Hollingsworth Jr. is an oddly ubiquitous character who popped up in the strangest places in the West Memphis Three story LG was listed among possible teenage suspects just days after the killings. Two lists were compiled by Lieutenant James Sudbury, Sudbury from information from Steve Jones and Jerry Driver, who were familiar with the teens as juvenile court officers. One list had Damien Eccles at the top, followed by Jason Baldwin, LG, Dominique Tier, and further down, Murray Ferris. A similar list had Eccles at the top, followed by Baldwin, LG, Dominee, and further down, Murray Ferris and Chris Luttrell. While all the others were often listed as members of a satanic group or witch cult, there's little evidence that LG was involved in occult activity. And uh, it's really very questionable where Dominique was involved in it or not. She doesn't seem to have been that interested in this, though her mother had all these witchcraft books and her boyfriend was, her cousin was involved in witchcraft. <coughs> her boyfriend, the father of her child, was involved in witchcraft, but, you know, I'm not really sure that she cared that much about that. Uh, Jesse Miskelly, though, well-known to law enforcement, was not on the list. Like Jesse, LG was in frequent trouble with the law. Investigators soon discovered he called or visited Dominey, his so-called cousin, regularly and was well acquainted with Eccles. Eccles. Hollingsworth had also formed a friendship with an older man that officers found questionable. LG's aunt, Narlene Hollingsworth, called in a tip on May 9th that added to early suspicions about LG. Besides stating she had seen Damien and Domini walking away from the murder site on May 5th, she said, quote, LG made a statement on Thursday that he knew about what happened before anyone else. LG has 666 on the side of his shoes. Uh, Narlene made a similar claim about Eccles' boots. In a case loaded with confusing family relations, the Hollingsworth connections were particularly elaborate. When asked on the stand about the Eccles Baldwin during the Eccles Baldwin trial to identify LG, Narlene said, "He's my ex-husband's son, which is." The attorney asked, "So it'd be your stepson? At one time, he was your stepson then." Darlene says no, and Scott Davidson, the attorney, says no. Darlene, no, I'm his aunt through marriage. It's just by marriage. Davidson says, you're his aunt by marriage, but he's your ex-husband's son. 
And Darlene says, yes, sir, I know it's confusing. Davidson says, I'm confused on that one. Now, LG is your, Darlene, ex-husband's, Davidson, ex-husband's son, but you're his aunt by marriage. How did that happen? Judge David Burnett chimes in, is that really relevant? Let's don't try to sort it out, prompting laughter in the courtroom. I keep coughing. I'm going to give up on this and make a real short episode here. Uh, Narlene wasn't just LG's aunt. She had once been married to LG Sr., divorcing him after he became involved with her best friend. Narlene then married LG Sr.'s brother, Ricky Sr. Narlene was also related after a fashion to Dominique whose mother, Diane Tear, had a sister, Dixie Hufford, who was divorced from the father of Ricky Sr. and L.G. Sr. Dominique named Dixie Hollingsworth, also known as Dixie Hufford, as one of her relatives in an early interview. Hufford was tied in with the Eccles siding by the Hollingsworth family, as well as reports of the puzzling activities of L.G., Narlene continually referred to Hufford as Dixie Hollingsworth and described her on the stand as, quote, my ex-husband's used-to-be stepmother. Uh, Narlene and uh, Ricky Sr. had uh, divorced between the time of the sighting and the trial. I think this, and I'm, I talked to her in 2013. I think she and Ricky were still together then. I, there was an unfortunate set of circumstances in which I lost, I was not able to access my notes, computer malfunction uh, on uh, about all that, but I'm pretty sure, and she told essentially the same story that she told the courtroom as far as the siding. She was calling me about something else and I talked to her for quite a while. Uh, I think she was still married to Ricky then pretty sure. I mean, I, I'm like 99% sure. Uh, the Tears rented a trailer in Lakeshore from Pamela Hollingsworth, who was Narlene's sister and had married into the Hollingsworth family. Now, there's no way anybody listening to that could sort all that out. But essentially, part of what this means is that uh, Dominique Tear had no blood relation or, f or family relation by marriage at that point in any way to uh, L.G. Hollingsworth, who she, whom she considered to be her cousin. Uh, the only family connection was that her aunt was L.G.'s grandfather's ex-wife. But not his, but not his grandmother. She would would have been his step grandmother at some point. But they weren't even still married. She was married to somebody else at this point, or or had gone on and gotten divorced from him. I'm not sure there was a Mr. Hufford on the scene. 
but she definitely wasn't married to LG uh, to the uh, senior uh, LG in the whole uh, it's not the senior LG the senior Hollingsworth in this this uh, scenario uh, LG Jr. spent much of May 5th riding around with Narlene and hanging around Domini before showing up late that evening at the flash market laundromat on Ingram Boulevard managed by his grandfather's ex-wife Dixie Hufford after Narlene's tip to police the, uh, the West Memphis police had made contact with LG the next day on Monday May 10th Hollingsworth LG Hollingsworth was a dark-haired 17-year-old ninth-grade dropout recently employed as a sacker at the Big Star West Grocery. <coughs> Excuse me. He <coughs> oh, I didn't. I think I didn't think my throat was this bad. You know what? I'm rather than subject everybody to coughing, I'm just going to cut it short this time. Um, I hope to be back within a week or so. I may, you know, my if my throat gets obviously better in the next day or two, I may just uh, throw in an additional episode because I know I'm overdue. Uh, And I'm not going to say anything else because I'm afraid I'm going to start coughing again. And I know it's I know it's irritating to listeners, and I just assume not subject them to that sort of irritation. And I've rattled on for a few minutes anyway, so uh, we'll get into more about LG, uh, Hollingsworth, probably next week. Uh, my intention is to do a little side track, see it, do a little detour for a couple of weeks into the Central Park 5 case. It's another very complicated case with a long history, and uh, I'm really going to, I'm putting together some materials, and to, e to even do that, to even get an overview on the case. Have, I'm, <clears throat> you know, I'm watching taped confessions and read. I've got a, a book about the case that I'm reading, and I've got other things going on. So I, I want to be informed before I talk too much about it, and get the materials there because, you know, I talking off the top of my head, I don't trust myself on that, and I think you can see why. <laughs> but. Uh, you know, I know the West Memphis Three case pretty well, and even then, I I draw blanks at times. But uh, it's very complicated, and the Central Park Five case is at least that complicated. So I, I want to have something I can read, and I'm not going to read something else, something somebody else wrote, and, and pass it off as my podcast. So I'm trying to put together some something that's at least got some basis uh, 
as, as for my authorship of it. Obviously, all the materials gathered secondhand. I want to apologize again for coughing. I hate it, and I th I thought I had it well under control. It's my coughing has been much less, and I, you're going to get tired of me talking about the darn coughing. My coughing has been not bothering me at all until I started this podcast today, and suddenly. I got this irresistible urge to cough. Maybe I'm just not meant maybe I'm just not meant to podcast. Who knows? I never claimed it was my wife's calling. But uh anyway, I'm I'll be back next week. Maybe sooner. Thank you for bearing with me. <laughs>